Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading verses 4 to verse 6 today. Verse 4 all the way to verse 6. Praise the Lord. What a glorious time of worship that was. Uh, Let's begin in verse 4. This is what the Word of God says. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray one more time. Dear Lord, we thank you so much again, Father, for the glorious access that the new covenant has given us so that we can freely and by your grace enter into your courts with thanksgiving and praise on our lips. Thank you, God that Christ has torn the veil in two, that he has opened up a new and living way to the holy of all, the holiest of all. Father, we're so grateful, Lord, for our Savior. Thank you that we can take refuge in him. Thank you that we can rely completely on him. Thank you, Lord, that it is not of ourself, even as this text teaches us that our adequacy, our fitness for new covenant ministry and for new covenant life is not because of anything of our doing. It's not because of any merit or good in ourselves, God. It's not because of any track record that we hold. It's not because of any lineage that we have. It's not because of any upbringing that we had. It's not because of any descent or ethnicity Lord, but it's only because of the righteousness of your Son that was freely and sovereignly imputed to us. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. I pray, God, that you would make the glories of the new covenant clear and apparent to us Today and as we travel through this chapter, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and minds to just how glorious the new covenant really is. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are looking at a second part, really, of a lengthy chapter in the Apostle Paul here in chapter 3 because it all has to do with the new covenant and new covenant realities what it means to be in the new covenant, what it means to be a new covenant minister, what it means to be um, under a new covenant dispensation, a new covenant era, a new covenant age. And it is our life, our whole life is bound up in this new covenant era, the new covenant that Christ instituted by his blood. And here, the Apostle Paul is beginning slowly now to transition towards the topic of ministry. Look at verse 7 quickly. It says, But if the ministry of death, in letters, 
engraved on stones, came with glory, so the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face was fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even with more glory? I, I, I read those two verses because there he uses the word ministry. Here he talks about the subject of ministry. Then he's going to make it explicit of what he's talking about. But this whole passage, verses 4 to 6, is all about making the new covenant minister fit for new covenant ministry. And so the topic or the subject or the title of this sermon I would entitle The Sufficiency of the New Covenant Minister. And there's several things that Paul is going to talk about. Number one, He's, he's going to talk about his confidence, the confidence of a new covenant minister. Look at verse 4 because verse 4 is important. It's a, it's a connecting verse. It kind of connects us to what went before and where he uses the word here, confidence. Look at, he says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. And so when he makes a reference to this confidence, he's not looking ahead, but he's Literally looking back, it looks backwards to the confidence that he's already spoken about. The confidence that as a new covenant minister, the work of the Spirit was being accomplished in the people of God. Now, if you paid attention to the context here, the Apostle Paul is talking about being made adequate. What makes him competent as a minister? What makes him sufficient? Where does he get his sufficiency? Where does the sufficiency come from? Well, you know, this is a theme that he introduced all the way back in chapter 2. In verse 16, he asks sort of the open-ended question, who is adequate for these things? And we talked about what are these things It is to preach the gospel of life and death. It is to be the representative of life and death, hell and heaven, all these great eternal realities. Who is fit for that? Who is sufficient for those things? And so now, Paul, if you would, sort of rounding out the whole thing, this is what they call an inclusio in the New Testament, beginning and ending a large section with the same exact subject. So he's ending the subject or the section here with, again, bringing up this issue of being sufficient, being adequate, being competent for the ministry. And he says, such confidence we have through Christ towards God. What an amazing statement that he uses here, literally. Because when he says that he is confident, the word confident is interesting because it is very unique to Paul. It is a word that only appears in Paul's writings, and it appears right here in 2 Corinthians with the greatest frequency. It's only used a couple other times, Ephesians 3 and Philippians chapter 3. Outside of that, all the other references are right here in 2 Corinthians, and the word literally means to have a certainty about something. A confidence, a certitude. It means that he has an assurance of the confidence that God has given him. He, he, he ministers and he preaches the gospel with the absolute certainty that God has given him that the things that he is preaching are true. And as we have seen, the confidence that he's talking about here is the self-evident work right? The self-evident work of the Spirit among the Corinthians. You remember how chapter 3 opened up. 
He opened up by saying, look, we are not like some people that need letters of recommendation to substantiate our ministry. That's not how our ministry is solidified. That's not how it's, how it's authenticated, you know? Paul is not a true minister because he has a letter with a stamp from the church of Jerusalem or Judea or his launching base there, Antioch. That's not why his ministry was a legitimate gospel, new covenant ministry. It was because the spirit of the living God had attested to his ministry. And the proof really is in the pudding. The proof is in the church itself. Paul argued that the proof was that they themselves were Paul's letter. In fact, they were Christ's letter. They were Christ's letter in that Jesus ultimately was the author and finisher of their faith. And that Paul was nothing but an amanuensis, a secretary, an agent. He was just Jesus' scribe doing Jesus' bidding. That's what he was doing. And so... Paul's confidence was in the fact that his ministry was changing lives. This is why this whole section on the new covenant is so relevant to every one of us. Because the new covenant means a changed life. That's it. You want to know if you're in the new covenant? Do you have a changed life? Do you want to know if the new covenant has taken root in your heart? If you have any dealings with the new covenant at all in your life? Well, look around. Is your life being transformed? Has it been transformed? Has there been a radical change in your life? If you're in the new covenant, it has to. It has to change. This is where Paul's confidence was at. It was in the fact that God was changing lives through his ministry. In other words, no pastor, no minister has any legitimate ministry if it is not authentically changing people's lives. If marriages are not growing, if if husbands are not becoming more loving to their spouses, if wives are not becoming more submissive to their husbands. Did I say that right? Okay. Okay. You didn't laugh, so I thought I might have switched that around. That would have been kind of weird to say. Anyway, that would have sounded kind of weird. <laughs> but you get the point. All the household codes, all the, all, the, all the slave and master relationships. How has your life changed at work? Because you're in the new covenant. How has your life changed in society? Because you are in the new covenant. You see, everything changes when you are in covenant with God. And the new covenant is... Is, is a supreme, superior, vastly better covenant than the old covenant because everybody that is part of it has changed. Nobody can be in the new covenant who has not been radically transformed by the, pe- by, the, by the work of God. Listen, you can identify yourself with the people of God all you want. You can come to church. You can sit in the pew. You can do the things that Christians do. You can sing the same songs. You can carry trendy Bibles around. You can say the right Christian things. But if you are not in the new covenant, you do not have part of membership with the new covenant. You're not genuinely, you've not genuinely partaken of the new covenant reality. There is no mixed multitude in the new covenant. That's actually a very controversial position, but that's the position I hold. That's why we don't baptize infants. We don't give them the sign of the covenant. Baptism is reserved for believers only. That's why I'm a Baptist. 
We don't give false assurance to babies and tell them you're in the covenant. You've been put in the covenant people of God. And your baptism, that is a sign that you one day you are going to be in the people of God. No, my friends, to be in the new covenant means that you know the Lord. That's what it means. It means that you know the Lord. Now, there are two things here about his confidence I want you to notice. Namely, there is... There are two directions. One is instrumental, and the other one is relational, if you would. Instrumentally, Christ is the means of Paul's confidence. Notice he says, such confidence we have through Christ. That is what Christ is able to do through the agency of Christ. And then he says, toward God. And we'll come back to that. But first and foremost, this idea of being confident through Christ Before I talk about the minister's power or the minister's effectiveness or the minister's ministry, the very first thing I need to talk about is the minister's union with Christ. And that might shock some of us, right, and think, what? Well, if a pastor is not in union with Christ, which means he's saved, if a pastor is not saved, well, then how could he be a pastor? Oh, my friends, listen, there are plenty of pastors who are not saved today. There are plenty of ministers out there in all sorts of different churches who are not saved. Matter of fact, I have a good friend. I suppose I won't use his name because I don't want to maybe embarrass him, but I know a friend that was a pastor for years in an evangelical church, only to come out some 10 years of pastoring later that he was never converted. And so the most basic elementary thing is that if a pastor is to preach, he himself should be converted. This is the way that Charles Spurgeon opened up his famous book, Lectures to My Students. He said that a pastor should be converted. And listen, the reason why he started there is because obviously Spurgeon, like us, has seen the reality of that. Listen to what he says here in his book, Lectures to My Students, when he deals with this issue directly. He says, How horrible is it for a preacher of the gospel to be yet unconverted? Let each man therefore whisper to his own soul, what a dreadful thing it would be for me if I should be ignorant of the power of the truth which I am preparing to proclaim. He goes on, a graceless pastor is a blind man elected to be a professor of optics, philosophizing upon the light and upon light and vision, discoursing about the and distinguishing to others the nice shades and the delicate blendings of the prismatic colors, while he himself is absolutely in the dark. He is a dumb man elevated to the chair of music, a deaf man fluent in symphonies and harmonies. He is like a mole professing to educate eagles. He is like a limpet. And I had to look that up. What is a limpet? It's like a little shell creature, underwater shell creature. He says it's like a limpet elected to preside over the angels. To such a relationship, one might apply the most absurd and even grotesque metaphors, except that the subject is too solemn. Whatever his natural gifts, whatever his mental powers may be, he is utterly out of court for spiritual work if he has no spiritual life. And it is his duty to cease the ministerial office till he has received the very first of the simplest qualifications for it. That's right. That is absolutely right. 
That's why Paul said, first and foremost, my confidence as a minister is through Christ. That is through what Christ had done, through union with Christ. And then furthermore than that, the next relationship is this, to God or towards God, or you could even translate it in the presence or before God. And he's already talked about that. Look back at chapter 2, verse 17. He's already said that very thing about those who shamefully preach, not with the confidence of God, not with the confidence that comes through Christ, but they peddle God's word. They engage in shameful, hidden, underhanded, crafty ways, as we'll find out in chapter 4. But in verse 17, he says, we are not like those or like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, and we speak in Christ. And then he says this amazing statement, in the sight of God. And remember, we talked about that phrase, in the sight of God. The word sight there is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting word because it literally means you're speaking in front of the person who has the power to scrutinize you, to judge you, to inspect you. And that's what Paul is saying he preaches in the, in the presence of the one, the only one, with whom he has to do. But in all of our lives, brothers and sisters, we are made confident through Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 2, he says, In him, in Christ, we have boldness and confidence through faith. In Romans 15, verse 18, he says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and by deed. See, Paul, Paul was always very quick to give credit where credit is due. His, his confidence first and foremost began and ended with God. It was a God-centered confidence. Listen to what Kent Hughes has to say on this exact verse. He says, because this confidence is through Christ and not through any power of his own, and because his confidence is towards God, it focuses on nothing earthly as its source or its end. Paul's confidence was supremely God-confident. I tell you what. As a minister of the new covenant, as a pastor of the new covenant, if you are not confident towards God, all your other confidence is false, as a false foundation, is, is, is quicksand, is, shaking, is, is shifting sand. If you're not confident, first and foremost, in the sight of God, then it doesn't matter how confident you may appear to everyone else. He doesn't just deal with his confidence, therefore, but he also deals then with the sufficiency. And he states this in two ways, negatively and positively. Look at verse 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. So right after talking about how confident he is, of course, he wants to reiterate, look, just to be crystal clear, my confidence, Paul would say, as a minister, this, this, this boldness that I'm talking about, this certitude, this assurance, this absolute confidence is nothing of myself. The sufficiency or the word adequate, the word adequate means competent. This competency comes only from God. And he makes that abundantly clear. That's the only reason why the Apostle Paul and any other minister can be commended as a minister. Not because of anything of himself, 
It's not because he is hip or cool or funny or because he's a good communicator or because he's a good, you know, psychologist and he can make you feel good. It's not because he's so smart and intelligent and because he's such a great scholar. The reason why any minister will be commended before God is because God has made him adequate for his calling. It is nothing of himself. And that's the very first thing that God would do to a minister is to empty him of all of his self-reliance. God already did this to Paul. Look back at chapter 1. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. He says, We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction that came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. For what purpose? So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. God had to empty Paul of all of his self-sufficiency. Oh, I can do it. I got it. I can do this on my own. I can do marriage on my own. I can do family on my own. I can do this job by myself. I can do ministry on my own, my own strength, my own power. I don't need to be right with God. I don't, get, I, don't, I don't need to depend on God. I don't need to seek God. I don't need to pray. I don't need to spend time in prayer. I don't need to spend time in the Bible. I got it. I can do the religious thing. No, you can't. And it will be false fire and oftentimes false conversion, false Christianity. No, brothers and sisters, the Christian, like the minister of God, is the one who has cast aside all self, sense of self-sufficiency. And he has thrown himself and abandoned himself and thrusted himself utterly on the cross of Jesus Christ only for his strength. I see two things emerging from this passage. Number one, the powerless ministry of the flesh. Number two, the powerful ministry of the Spirit. That is what Paul is trying to compare here. There is ministry that is done in the power of the flesh. And exegetically, meaning essentially, the first thing we've got to understand is, what did that mean? What does it mean, uh, this ministry that you know, those who are peddling God's word, those that are going by the letter, those that are going by ink, and not those that are going by the tablets of stone, not those that are going by the Spirit, those that are going by the power and sufficiency of God. What does it mean? What's the contrast he's drawing? Who's he talking about? Well, I would suggest that he's talking about those Judaizers who were, which professed faith in Christ, but we're saying you need to return back to certain tenets of the Jewish faith in order for you to be fully accepted before God. See, you have, you're, 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 you're kind of on your way there. Yes, you've accepted Christ. Good that you've accepted Jesus, Messiah, that you've embraced the Savior, His work. But you have to now take upon yourself a certain list of Jewish customs and traditions circumcision, observance of days, months, feasts, moons, these kinds of things. So that you take all of Paul's theology together, and what you get is what Acts chapter 15 verse 5 talks about. You had those Jews who were believing, apparently, but were also trying to call Gentiles to more, more law observance. 
And this is exactly what he's renouncing. But some of these went so far as to deny the sufficiency of the gospel. Therefore, they became heretics. They became ministers of Satan, in fact, not ministers of Christ. So Paul is saying, look, there's only two ways to deal with the ministry. You're either going to deal with it in the power of the flesh or in the power of the Spirit. If you're in the flesh, that means you're going to peddle the Word of God, and that means you will not be able to do it in, a sufficient, or in, a, in, a, uh, uh, in an integrous way in the sight of God. But you will, you will uh, you'll resort to underhanded, hidden, and shameful ways of doing ministry you will have to sneak in the back door to creep and to, and to sneak in your false doctrine and your false theology. But Paul says quite the opposite. The new covenant minister is a person that rightly calculates where his adequacy comes from. Notice he says he considers, as he says, not that, uh, to consider anything as coming from ourselves. That word consider comes from the Greek word logizomai, which means to calculate to make a careful assessment, a careful calculation. And he's saying, look, look over who you are. Con- carefully consider that nothing comes from you. That's so powerful. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning of verse 18, Paul will deal with his opponents head on. They are those, he says in verse 18, who boast according to the flesh. They are those, according to verse 20, that exalt themselves. They are those who, according to verse 21, who think they are bold. And Paul says, no, no. If anyone is bold, it's me. If If anyone can boast according to the flesh, I can. And you remember the parallel passage there in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul shows, look, this is what it looks like to put confidence in your flesh. Philippians chapter 3 verses 2 to 6. And Paul says, no, that's not what we do. So not only is there the powerless ministry of the flesh, but there's also then the powerful ministry of the Spirit. And he contrasts the Spirit and the flesh all throughout this whole section. In chapter 6, he'll go on to say, or verse 6, excuse me, of chapter 3, verse 6, he says, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, the Spirit gives life. Okay? The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We'll get to that in a minute. In this case, then, the letter stands for the Old Covenant, that which apparently some were trying to draw others back to. This ministry is empowered by self, self-sufficiency, self-achievement, self-credentials race, descendants, law-keeping, those types of things. Paul renounces all of that. And let me point you back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. He says this, Beware of dogs. Beware of dogs. He'll explain. Beware of evil workers. Well, who are these people? Then he says, Beware of the false circumcision. You see that? That is a translation. If you have that in your Bible, the false circumcision is a translation. The, the literal Greek literally means beware of the mutilation, those who mutilate the flesh. In other words, it was almost a, a crass way for Paul to refer to the Judaizers, those who were mutilating their flesh, which was actually irony of all ironies because it was the Levitical law itself that forbidden you from mutilating or engaging in self-mutilation. Paul's saying they mutilate the flesh by trying to force circumcision on you. He says, no. He says, we put no confidence. We are the true circumcision. 
circumcision, we worship in the Spirit of God to the glory and, and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. What a commentary on 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I love it because it just proves that the Word interprets the Word. Scripture interpreting Scripture. That's what the Reformers called the analogy of the faith. Let the Word interpret itself. God is His own interpreter. And that's exactly what these folks were doing. They were, they were putting confidence in themselves. And Paul says, we put no confidence in the flesh. He says, back to Corinthians, to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Anything. Nothing. There is no self-adequacy in the new covenant ministry. God has a long history, brothers and sisters. Let me encourage you again with this reality that God has a long history of using very inadequate people to fulfill His great redemptive purposes. Your whole life functions under this banner. He already told this to the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God loves to use the things that are nothing. He, he loves to use that which is not to bring to nothing the things that are. And the whole purpose of that is so that no one would boast before God. God does this in your life every day, brothers and sisters. You are not adequate to live the Christian life. You don't have what it takes. You don't have the power. You don't have the strength. You don't have the faithfulness. You don't have the commitment. You don't have the character. You don't have the integrity that it takes. God is making you fit. God is transforming you. God is the one that is shaping you more and more into the image of Christ. And that is where this whole passage is going to. Like Paul told the Philippians, God is the one who began a good work in you. He will complete it on the day of Christ. It is not your job to, to, in a sense, to glorify yourself. Certainly not to glorify yourself. But even in sanctification, brothers and sisters, it is God who is, who is willing and doing in your life. All you can do, therefore, is to throw yourself on the mercy of God, depend on God, by faith, look to God, look to Christ, feast on Christ, feed on Him. And as you feed on the vine, guess what? You will bear fruit. Period. If you are in the vine, if you're, if you're communion with, communing with Jesus Christ, if you're seeking the Lord, if you're living a, a life of obedience, the natural byproduct is fruit. You're going to bear fruit. Third thing, not only does he tell us his confidence, his sufficiency, but then his last point here and the point that he's going to carry on is his objective in the new covenant. The objective of the new covenant minister. Look at verse 6. He says, Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. We could say that as servants of a new covenant serves almost like a purpose clause for the purpose of being the servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is what he says. God makes him sufficient, not just to live the Christian life, but more specifically, to be a new covenant minister. 
And he says, servants of a new covenant. Don't get thrown off by that word, a, as if this is some kind of new covenant apart from the new covenant. No, it's the same. As a matter of fact, Paul did this on purpose. When he says, not the new covenant, but a new covenant, he's actually quoting the Septuagint. He is quoting the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And he's quoting Jeremiah 31, 31. I will make a new covenant with them. That's exactly where he's quoting from. It's the fulfillment of God's promises. Don't you see? This is why Paul can say all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. It's only through Christ that these new covenant promises are come to reality. But let me tell you this. The word new is also very important. He could have picked a different word for the word new. But he picked a specific word, one that could also render the meaning of better, superior, supreme. And that's exactly what the context suggests, right? The whole context here is about how the new covenant is better than the old. The author of Hebrews really identifies with this. Let me read to you some passages out of Hebrews chapter, or out of the book of Hebrews, beginning in chapter 7, verse 22. The author of Hebrews says, So much more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. In Hebrews chapter 7, he'll go on to say in verse 18, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment because because of its weakness and its uselessness, for the law did not make anything perfect. Speaking of the worshiper. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And in the context there of Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus is replacing Aaron. He has replaced the priesthood. In chapter 8, the author of Hebrews says, Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator Moses was a mediator. Jesus is better than Moses. I know this is kind of bringing you back to Sunday school, but Jesus is better than Moses. And it says, he says, he says, I lost my spot. He's a mediator of a better covenant. Diotheke, covenant. He uses that technical term, which has been enacted, listen to this, on better promises. The new covenant promises better things. What did the old covenant promise? A lot of good things. I'll make it rain on your land. Your crops will grow. Your children will multiply. You'll be fruitful. You'll be safe in the land. Your enemies won't come to destroy you. Right? He says, but there's also curses in the old covenant. And you can see the blessings by the cursings. One of the Old Testament curses was God saying, I will shut up the sky. I will make the sky like iron. I'll make the sky, I'll make the ground like, like bronze. It will not yield for you any food. But my friends, the blessings and the promises of the new covenant are far, far greater because they are absolutely salvific promises They are promises of uniting you to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They are salvation promises. Anyone can eat food. 
Not anybody can be saved unless God saves them through the new covenant. Let me give you another text. Hebrews 8.7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. You see that there is an occasion to seek another covenant, a better covenant. That's what the prophets were doing. They were laying out the prophecies for a better covenant. Matter of fact, Hebrews 8.13, speaking of Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah says, a new covenant. He has made the first one obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and it is ready to disappear. You see, what was going on in Hebrews was that Jewish Christians were being tempted to go back under the Mosaic law, back under relating to God through Torah observance. They were going back to days and feasts and new moons and circumcision and Paul and well, that shows you my bias of who wrote Hebrews, but maybe Paul, maybe Apollos, maybe Luke, we don't know. But the author of Hebrews is saying, don't go back to that. Chapter 10, verse 1 makes it very clear. The law is a shadow of good things to come, not of the former things, because they can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, they can never make perfect those who draw near. Only the new covenant can make the worshiper perfect. That's why it's a better covenant. It's a superior covenant. It is a supremely outshining covenant. I'll tell you a funny story to kind of illustrate this. Uh, I get bit by mosquitoes a lot, really bad. So I'm afraid right now because West Nile, you know. Um, They're talking about how bad it is here in Dallas. Well, I was up the other week, I think it was last Sunday, um, and a a messenger of Satan, that is a mosquito, was sent to buffet me all night long. So I was in my room at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning trying to get some sleep and being tormented and being eaten alive by this mosquito that just wouldn't leave me alone. Well, because I love my wife so much, I, I got out a flashlight and I started looking around for this mosquito with a flashlight, barely awake. It was impossible. But you know what I did after a while? My hatred for that mosquito surpassed my love for my wife. So I turned on the light. said, sorry, sweetheart. I know that that might bother you. But guess what? I didn't need my mag light anymore. Because I turned the light on. The, the, the light so vastly outdid the flashlight that I don't need the flashlight anymore. You see that? It's, it's, I can set it aside. And that's exactly what the new covenant is. It is like the moon being outshined by the sun. Is there anything wrong with the moon? No. Was there anything wrong with the law? No. Matter of fact, Paul tells us in Romans 7, the law is holy and righteous. There's nothing wrong with the law per se. What's wrong is the worshiper. And being relating to God through the law will never make him perfect. You can try and try and try, and you can try to earn your right to be in the presence of God, and you can try to sacrifice until you're blue in the face, but it will never cleanse your conscience. It will never make you perfect before God. Think about that. Through Christ and through his righteousness and through what he did on his new covenant cross is he made the worshiper perfect. 
so that you have the perfect righteousness of Christ accredited to your account, imputed to you by faith on the basis of his grace and nothing else. And that righteousness has now perfected you in the sight of God. You stand justified in the sight of God. You are righteous in God's sight. And no, and this is tricky. Pastors really have to grapple with this. And no amount of sin can undo your righteousness. Right? Why is it tricky? Because it almost sounds like I just said, go ahead and sin as much as you want. You're still going to be righteous. Well, Titus says, the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness. The grace of God does not promote more sin. The grace of God does not lead you to antinomianism. The grace of God does not talk to you like this. Hey, you're under grace, so why don't you just go get involved in some more sin? That's not what it says. The grace of God says, God has so liberated you, God has so freed you, God has so rescued you out of the pit of hell and given you a new nature and a new heart. Hey, why don't you go worship God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul? That's what the grace of God teaches us to do. So we are in this battle of sanctification But my friends, we have such a much greater, more glorious covenant, and I can't wait for next week. Let me tell you what's coming next week. Verses 7 through 11, I encourage you to read it, to look into it, because we are going to see how that the amazing things that happen on Mount Sinai, Moses, I mean, it says that Moses' face was shining so brilliantly, you couldn't even look at him. It was like, whoa, I don't, whoa. That guy's been with God, and the Shekinah glory of God was emanating off of the face of Moses. It was, it was an epiphanic phenomenon. And Paul is saying, the face of Jesus shines brighter than the face of Moses. Lord willing, that's next week. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, I know that we have a lot of great promises and Father we have such a superior covenant in the new covenant Father we know that the new covenant does not lead us to a lawless life but it also doesn't lead us to try to earn our righteousness through the law and so God please help us to live in the realities that we hear and know and see and see to be true in your word. Father, please help us to write down in a little piece of paper what areas of my life have changed because of the new covenant. How has the new covenant affected my marriage? How is the new covenant affecting my parenting skills? How is the new covenant affecting my character? God, help us to take stock, to do a healthy introspection of ourselves God, we just want to be in a, in, a, in a position that we are pleasing to you. God, we want to do your will, Lord. We want to do that which is pleasing in your sight. We want to live lives that are holy and pleasing to you, God, and forbid that we should ever take upon ourselves any sort of lawless or antinomian spirit in our hearts. As the Apostle Paul says, because grace abounds, 
Or should, excuse me, Paul says, where, uh, should we sin because grace abounds? No, God forbid, absolutely not. We should not sin just because we are under grace and not under law. Father, we love you for your law. We love the law of God written on our hearts. We do it not so that we can earn our righteousness, but we do it because it is our pleasure, it is our desire, it is faith working through love. Thank you, Lord. Conform our lives more and more into new covenant believers, new covenant worshipers. Help us, Lord, to draw near, therefore, with full assurance, no doubting, no wavering, full assurance of faith, knowing that we are fully acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me leave you with Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through 24. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, things that happen on Sinai, and to the blast of a trumpet and to the sound of words which sound was so such that those who heard begged that no further be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling, but you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn that is enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. God bless you. Just reading that out of Hebrews makes me want to teach Hebrews. So I'm going to, but we'll have to get through uh, 2 Corinthians first. God bless you. I hope you have a great week.